This is a Diet of Brussels. In today's episode, we've got uh, another interview for you, this time with uh, Simon Hicks, who's the Harold Lasky Professor of Political Science at the London School of Economics. Uh, we were talking uh, about a variety of different things. Um, as you'll hear at the beginning, uh, he recently gave the JCMS uh, Annual Review Annual Lecture. And if you want more information about that, if you just type JCMS into uh, your search engine, you'll find the journal and information about the uh, lecture. Uh, and the text of that will be available in the next month or so on the JCMS website. So sit back and uh, enjoy our chats, which covers various aspects, uh, and uh, watch out for the shouting. So the reason we're talking is uh, approximately that uh, a couple of weeks ago you gave the uh, annual lecture of the annual review of the Journal of Common Market Studies, uh, which is uh, a point to discuss uh, a topical subject, and you talked about Brexit and where you see it heading. Um, do you want to say, is it useful to start with where you think it's heading? Or, or yeah. do you should start with process rather well, than Well, no, I guess, I guess what I was trying to do in the lecture was several things. Firstly, to focus on the future relationship. So, you know, we've had a lot of art debate and analysis of the withdrawal agreement, the transition arrangements, and the customs union, which is one bit of the future relationship, but we haven't yet really had much of a discussion or debate or analysis in the UK about the real substantive content of that future relationship in terms of what actually do you put in an agreement between the EU27 and the UK that's going to be the basis of our, where we are for the next 10 plus years. And then to try and think about the interests of the UK independently from the interests of the EU27, where those interests coincide and where those interests, in a way, are conflictual. So um, I tried to think about economics as well as politics. And on the economic side, the key point I was trying to make was that it's an asymmetric relationship between the UK and the EU27. It's asymmetric in two senses. One, in terms of the relative sizes of the two economies and the relative importance of the trade relations between the two economies. So from the you know trade UK trade with the EU twenty seven is worth around about forty eight percent of our total trade, which is around twelve percent of our GDP. Trade for the from the EU twenty seven to the UK is worth about sixteen percent of total EU external trade and only about three percent of their GDP. And and so from a kind of understanding trade bargaining the UK is in a weaker position and probably then that helps us understand why the EU is probably going to get more of what it wants. Mm. The other economic issue is the content of that trade. The EU trades sells us mainly goods and we export to the EU mainly services. So there's a net surplus in, uh, there's a net, you know, we have a net deficit in trade with the EU27 in goods of around about 100 billion a year, 100 billion euros a year. And we have a net surplus in services trade of around about 20 billion a year. So it's kind of mercantilist to say that, but but from a big political point of view, where how politicians think about these things, it's much easier for the EU to go back home and sell to its car producers and its champagne manufacturers and its Prosecco sellers a goods deal, a free trade agreement that covers goods. They'll say there'll be zero tariffs and quotas on goods. That's fine. But from the UK's perspective, we actually want a services deal. We want a deal that includes financial services. And 
And that's really hard because we're going out into the world to go and sign new trade agreements, a trade agreement with the EU, trade agreement with the US, trade agreement with everyone else in the world. Trade agreements up to now really only cover goods. They don't really cover services. And one of the frustrations I have with the debate in the UK is very skewed by the sort of libertarian free traders who I think have a complete misconception of what free trade is. They're hung up on that word free. There's no such thing as free trade. It should be called regulated trade. There's, you know, a free trade agreement is not an agreement to trade freely. It's, a, it, it's an agreement to, to sell and buy a subset of goods and services according to an agreed set of rules and standards. That's regulated trade. So, you know, the only you know, free trade we have, in a way, is within the single market, where there's zero fiscal, physical or technical barriers to the free movement of goods, services, capital or labour. Not quite, but close to. Yeah. And that's definitely freer than any free trade agreement. So, so the idea that we, we're going to have frictionless trade with you is not going to happen. We will have friction, frictional trade, and that will affect services in a negative way much more than goods. On the political side, one of the key political issues, I think, is from the EU side, they worry about contagion, of course. So, you know, they don't, they don't want a particularly generous deal for the UK. Actually, I, I think that's less important than... the the ratification hurdles. So the Article 50 deal only requires qualified majority in the Council, simple majority in the European Parliament and in the House of Commons and House of Lords. The free trade agreement or the future relationship is going to require unanimity in the Council, simple majority in the European Parliament, plus ratification in all the national parliaments and several regional parliaments, 30 plus parliaments, as well as the Commons and Lords. And so that's a very high threshold, a very high hurdle. And we haven't even started to discuss or think about what that means for the deal. So we might fantasise that we want a, a free a Canada plus, plus, plus deal with a very liberal regime for financial services. But try ratifying that through the French National Assembly or the Belgian Parliament or the Walloon Parliament or even the Bundestag right now. Mm. You know, a free trade agreement that sounds like it's very generous to Anglo-Saxon bankers, who a lot of people on the centre and centre-left on the continent blame for the financial crisis. Why would they? Why would you be able to ratify that? So I, I think we are probably heading towards a relatively basic free trade agreement. Um, when I say basic, I mean, you know, like the agreement the EU has with Canada or South Korea or Japan, largely covering goods, a little bit of services... Uh, but not much more than that. And that won't be great for the British economy. Um, there will be negative economic consequences of that. But it will not be the beginning of the end. There'll be things that will come after that, bolt-ons and stuff. So that was more or less what I was trying to argue. Okay, great. That's, well, that's it. We've done the... Uh, <laughs> no, okay, there's lots in there. Um, let's maybe start at the beginning of that, which is why don't we think about this enough or why don't we talk about this enough you talk about you know the things that you talk about here in the UK so the arguments we're having at the moment about customs partnerships versus maximum facilitation like anyone knows what either of those things mean and also ignoring that uh, neither of those are acceptable to the, the EU so why why 
particularly at a point where we are thinking, there is the start of a discussion in the UK about the future relationship. Haven't we thought about it in those more encompassing kind of terms? Is that just political exigency? Is it incapacity or inability or unwillingness? It's, it's interesting. I think it's, <coughs> it's part of it is driven by the timetable of Brexit that the EU has set up where you cannot really talk about the future relationship until you've actually agreed and signed the and ratified the, the Article 50 Withdrawal Agreement. We've started to talk about the first bit of it, which is the customs arrangements. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason why we're focusing on those is because customs and borders are the most politically salient and politically no- noticeable thing that will happen the day after we leave. You know, lorries backed up at Dover, Kent becoming a car park, things running out of supermarket shelves, drugs not being available in hospitals, and so on and so on. Uh, Suddenly, you know, factories coming to a standstill because their just-in-time production doesn't work. I mean, you know, I I understand why, why customs and goods trade, particularly, and the rules on goods trade, are the most, potentially the most politically salient and noticeable probably not as significant in terms of the actual economic consequences, but very politically salient. Mm. Um, And and add to that the fact that I think the manufacturing interests in the UK have really been working hard to bring to the attention of politicians the potential problems of us falling out without a deal or us leaving the customs union without having a new, highly sophisticated customs arrangement in place. So, you know, so one day to the next, you, let's say we leave and we, move, we lose passporting for financial services. Nobody really notices that, except some banks in the city who now have to sell their services from their branch in Frankfurt rather than their branch in London. You know, big consequences in terms of jobs and revenue and stuff, but you don't really notice we leave the EU without, without an adequate customs regime in place and suddenly air, air, you know, planes can't take off, uh, trucks can't go through the Channel Tunnel. Uh, you know, it's, a kind of, it's real disaster. What I worry about is the whole battle and argument about this goods-focused customs regime is going to run and run and run and run and run and we won't actually end up getting to a point where we can really talk about what the real medium-term economic big issue for the UK is, which is services. We're a services economy. Financial services is our, is our largest sector. It's our second largest sector of the creative industries. Film, fashion, art, design, media, architecture, advertising, higher education. These are our two really globally competitive, highly productive sectors, employ lots of people, contribute massive amounts of money to the exchequer, they are paying for the NHS. They are paying for schools and hospitals. They are paying for the military. If we lose those sectors and they really take a hit as a result of us being in a basic free trade agreement, we won't notice straight away, but we'll start to notice within two, three, four, five years when we start to lose jobs, lose revenue, and the government starts to, you know, tax revenue starts to dry up. And those relatively mobile and yeah. globalised sectors as well, where movement is possible and yeah. foreseeable. 
Yeah, exactly. Where, you know, banks, it's not that difficult for banks to say, we already have a branch in Dublin or we already have a branch in Frankfurt or Paris and we'll just move some staff or we'll lay people off here and recruit more people there and we'll just move the functions. Or if you're in the creative industry, say you're Vivendi Universal. Vivendi Universal, one of the world's largest TV and film production companies, its European headquarters are in High Street, Kensington. I think it employs around 700 people in High Street, Kensington. It runs all of its European film and TV production out of that office. If they're not able to compete for, say, making a drama series for a German TV station because they can't compete in a level playing field, they'll just move. They'll, you know, they'll move, they'll close the office here, move it to Paris or Amsterdam or wherever. They'll just be able to do that. And then I'm more worried about the small and medium-sized enterprises in these sectors, in fashion, uh, architecture, art, design, media, relatively small enterprises, whether it's, you know, interior design for cruise ships or small fashion houses or, you know, they're far less mobile. They have one office, it's here in London or, or in Bristol or Brighton or Manchester. Uh, they employ 20 or 30 people and if they're kind of locked out of the single market without the ability to trade freely across these borders, they will go out of business. Okay. And the issue partly is then also then that these things only become apparent after the fact, after it becomes harder to apply a sticking plaster solution. That's the worry. That's the worry. The worry is that because of political myopia, because of the salience or, or, or the kind of the ability to capture the imagination of, you know, lorries lining up in Dover or empty supermarket shelves, uh, and because of the political pressure from the manufacturing lobby in particular. Mm. Uh, we won't get to really think and debate services until it's really very late. Um, and if we leave it very late, then I don't, you know, I, my expectation is we leave the EU 29th of March next year, 2019, and we then really seriously start negotiating a free trade agreement. Um, and the EU puts on the table a deal that is largely the best bits of the EU agreement with Canada, South Korea, Japan and so on, and says, here it is, here's the best we can do as a trade agreement. And from the EU side, they're pretty happy with that. And they say, yeah, this is pretty good. We're happy with this. This will work for you. And it's a Canada plus. It's a kind of free trading with a few bits and pieces. And... Then we may be able to add on a separate security agreement, for example, the, perhaps an EU-UK summit once a year that discusses security issues. We may end up with an EU-UK arrest warrant framework or something like that. We may come to some agreement about free movement of high-skilled labour, but I doubt it until after we're out the other end. Um, and then the UK says, oh, that's not enough. We want mutual recognition of services or regulatory equivalents. We want, we want uh, service providers in the UK to be able to sell and buy things on the continent freely. We want to be a special agreement. that We don't want to be treated like service providers in the US or Canada or, or South Korea and so on. And what's in it for the EU at that point? Well, no, we don't particularly need you guys. There's plenty of other, we've got our own service providers. And the debate about services in the EU, services is highly regulated actually in the yeah. EU. There really isn't complete free movement of services. There's freedom to trade. Yeah. There's right of establishment. 
But there isn't really mutual recognition of service providers in the way there is of goods. So why would they give it to the UK outside the EU when it doesn't even exist inside the EU? If you're an architect, you have to go register as an architect. Or if you're a designer, you have to have certain recognition as a and so on and so on. Right. So if that ex doesn't exist between Germany and France, why would they allow complete free movement of services for the UK outside the single market? So... It, it's very, I think this is, we haven't even decided to discuss this really in, in the UK context. No, and I think that that's one of the things that sort of is clear in the way that this process has gone is that you, you talk about myopia and just the it's very introspective kind of debate and limited kind of debate here in the UK. And so one of the things I've been talking with people about recently is the lack of looking up and the, the debate for example, about customs arrangements doesn't really seem to take into consideration that there might be another party in the negotiations yes. of this. And I, I guess it's, that's a kind of uh, yeah. the, the problem. And the I think it's, we're very hung up, I think, on several of our own red lines that have come out of the Brexit vote from different camps in the Brexit debate in the UK. So one of the camps is a sort of liberal or libertarian Brexiteer camp. For them, there's two really key red lines. One is they want to be outside the single market and the jurisdiction of the ECJ because they want sovereignty and freedom. And the other red line is they want to be outside the customs union because they really think they can negotiate much better trade agreements with the rest of the world. Britain is a global free trader. Right? And then you have a more kind of nationalist Brexit camp. And there, for them, it's all about immigration. For the Liberals, they couldn't really care about immigration, actually. They kind of, you know, pay lip service to it, but actually they don't really mind. They're most of them, you know, whether it's David Davis or Michael Gove or Sajid Javid, or, or, you know, they're pretty liberal when it comes to immigration. And Boris Johnson, when he was London Mayor, was very liberal on immigration. Uh, you know, and I, I've heard people say, tell me that David Davis has said in private uh, that, you know, things like... Well, you know, we'll restrict immigration, but at some point in the future we'll be able to open it up again. <laughs> you know, so um, that's very different to a nationalist view, which yeah. I think is Theresa May epitomises inside the cabinet, Gavin Williamson, some of the others around her, and then some of the grassroots of the Conservatives and a lot of the voters who were UKIP voters or even Labour voters who... It, Brexit's about reducing immigration... Um, protecting industry, spending more money on the NHS, looking after British workers, you know, this kind of stuff. And for that, the key red line is not necessarily being outside the single market, not necessarily the ECJ, not necessarily the customs union. It's about immigration. It's about restricting the free movement of people. Um, but you can see that the plurality inside the British cabinet, the Conservative Party cabinet, are really those liberal Brexiteers. That's why they're so obsessed about the customs union. That's why they're so obsessed about the ECJ. Most people out there in the country couldn't give a damn about the customs union or the ECJ, whatever, you know, but they're obsessed with it. I, have, I can't say, I have many conversations, I'm sure you do, when you, you, you talk to people outside <laughs> of work, they say, what do you do? And then you end up having conversations yes. about Brexit. I never have a conversation about customs facilitation or anything <laughs> like that. Um, that's the, the question of immigration for me is, is very interesting because it was so central to the referendum debate, debate campaign 
uh, and then dropped right out of sight. And there's a sort of a crowding out of that in, in government because they're talking about the economics, the hard, you know, the hard and the soft is an economic distinction. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's several potential explanations about why. Uh, you're right, and actually you can see this in the opinion polls, mm. that immigration is no longer the number one most salient issue. And it was the number one salient issue from around about spring of 2014 onwards yeah. in YouGov and Ipsos Mori. Uh, and it's not anymore. It's dropped away. And so why is it dropped away? It could have dropped away because essentially there's a feeling that the public is, well, we've kind of fixed it because we're leaving the EU and UKIP has disappeared and they're not talking about it anymore because UKIP have disappeared and UKIP have disappeared because we've got Brexit. It could have gone away because, you know, Theresa May is seen as tough on immigration and she got the message and she's not the kind of cosmopolitan metrosexual like David Cameron who loves immigrants. She's a she's a tough shy as Tory who who, you know, is tough on immigration and the, it's it's in safe hands and and when they start apologizing for the hostile environment, then they keep saying, We're sorry there's a hostile environment and we you know, I know that we had these terrible policies. There's a hostile environment. You know, the more they talk about hostile environment, the more the people the, their voters go there's a hostile environment for immigrants. That's what we voted for. You know? So, in a sense, they feel like they're getting what they want. That could be one of the explanations. Yeah. It could be that the Liberals in the Cabinet have successfully managed to keep immigration off the political agenda so we don't talk about it. No, there's no debate about a post-Brexit immigration policy, really. And apart from amongst back. a few... Apart from yeah. the kind of wonky... People. I mean, you know, Sundar Kabwala is doing a good job to try and have a debate about it, but very few people seem to be listening. And proposals keep on getting pushed, pushed back, 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 deferred, deferred, yeah. deferred. Yeah. The third reason might be that immigration numbers are actually falling from the EU. So you know, when you look at the last immigration numbers, it it's you know they've sort of fallen off a cliff in terms of net immigration from the EU in the last round of immigration statistics and. The people, employers are starting to worry about them not having low-skilled workers. The NHS is in crisis because they can't have nurses and doctors. And so, in a, in a sense, we're in the. I think we're in an interregnum. I think I think a lot of the big economic interests are saying trying to keep immigration off the agenda because they actually would like a liberal immigration policy. The cabinet is obviously deeply split on the type of immigration policy. So there's lots of factors that I think are keeping it off the agenda. Right now. But then that raises the question of does it have the potential to come back on the agenda that you know at the end of that interregnum at the point that we reach some kind of settlement does that be, is there the potential for that I think that there is a potential effect, you know, I think there is a potential system. if for example um, they do it as part of a deal as part of the final deal they start to fudge on free movement of people I mean I'm surprised there wasn't more of a um more sort of anger from some elements of the conservative backbenchers that there's a continuation of free movement in transition. Because they she'd originally said free movement will end the day we leave in the spring of 2019. And no, it's not. It's going to carry on until December 2020. And people have kind of forgotten that. And this may be because, you know, the, Tory, the European Reform Group, the hard Brexiteers in the Tory party, they're not, you know, for example... Jacob Rees-Mogg, although he likes to play himself as quite a social conservative and a nationalist, he's quite liberal when it comes to immigration in some senses. I mean, so it's not 
he's not Nigel Farage, he's not Leave.eu, it's not that kind of Leave Brexiteer. And those voices are actually marginalised, I think, within the elite of the Conservative Party right now. But clearly with scope to come back in a post-May formation of the party, which presumably happens after next March? I think so. Yeah, I'd be really surprised if she's still in office in December 2020. I mean, I don't think she wants to be there. I can understand that she wants to feel like she's delivered Brexit. That was the mandate she took on. That's what she said she would do, and she would be able to feel that she did it. I think the party itself feels like it was the most disastrous election campaign in history for the Conservative Party, and they blame her for that. And so there'll be an appetite to get rid of her as soon as they can, enough ahead of the next election to build up ahead of steam. And actually, if they're still ahead of Labour by a few points, they'll say this might be a good time to go, and then we can build a real head of steam to, to head off Corbyn. So I think it'll be a battle of the next generation. I think, I think it'll be someone like Williamson who will be seen very much as, as carrying on May's legacy as a, as a tough, social conservative, nationalist uh, figure. And then it'll be interesting to see who the Liberals in the Conservative Party rally behind, who the Liberal Brexiteers rally behind. Do they rally behind Sajid Javid? Do they rally behind... Philip Hammond? <laughs> I doubt it. It'll be a liberal Brexiteer, I would think. Don't you think so? I don't know. It could be, but again, I'm trying to think who who are these people? Uh, You know, you might have said Rudd at some point, notwithstanding her constituency position, but you know, could still be. Could still be. It depends a bit on the path she takes now and credibility issues as a leader, you know, that if say the Conservatives are kind of always driven to to win elections and that's their priority and they'll, do, they'll pick the person they think is best suited to that then is she the right person to carry that message regardless of her, her Well I, I think the whole Remain Leave split within the Conservative Party will disappear I don't, well not completely disappear but will recede in terms yeah. of its significance I'm already already starting to see that when you think about Sajid Javid so here you know He's a new Home Secretary. He was a Remainer, but he's really sided with the Liberal Brexiteers in the Cabinet. Hmm. And we saw the, that's what the talk was this week. He, he was with Johnson and Davis and Fox on this issue of maximum facilitation versus customs union, which I think is a proxy war for a kind of nationalist Brexiteers versus the Libertarian Brexiteers. Fair enough. <laughs> All of which rate comes back then to, to where we started with thinking about the future relationship. You know, if the Conservative Party is changing, that's also part of how British politics yeah. changes at the point that the UK leaves. Do you see that changing the calculations that go on? You know, is is it that is there going to be a constituency who will say, actually the priority is formal withdrawal from the EU and that we can sell that as we've won the argument and then actually we're not so bothered about the shape of what comes after mm. or is it this is the first step in a, a bigger project? I guess what has surprised me is I thought that Labour would have taken a position that was a soft Brexit position from the get-go 
And it may well be to do with who, you know, Corbyn and MacDonald and these guys, and Emily Thornberry. <coughs> but I would have thought that the party that came out and said, Theresa May's going for the hardest of hard Brexit, the type of Brexit was not on the ballot paper. Uh, in a sense, the goalposts have moved since June. If you actually read Boris Johnson's article in the Telegraph on the Tuesday, on the Monday after the referendum on the Thursday, he's calling for a soft Brexit, hmm. and that didn't seem that crazy at that time. Now he's calling for a hard of hard Brexits, and he's evolved, he's moved. But there was a window in July, August, September of twenty sixteen, where people went, "Oh my goodness, the country is deeply divided." The average person in the country, there could be a coalition which is the moderate, the reluctant Remainers and the Liberal Leavers getting together and saying, we want a long transition, we move into the EEA, we do a soft Brexit initially, we try and work it out, we try and limit the impact on the economy, limit the impact on the services sector, we gradually leave the EU and, and we keep clo as close as we need to be and so we initially move into a soft kind of Brexit. That seemed like, at that point, actually, that was a reasonable political position to take. Instead, the Labour Party said, well, we have to leave, a soft Brexit's off the table, we can't be in the EEA, we, we can't be Norway, we have to leave, you know. In a sense, he went immediately for a hard Brexit position and it's gradually rolling back now and customs partnership and stuff. Lib Dems went for a let's overturn the referendum, which I thought was mad. Um, so nobody was articulating a classic kind of soft Brexit policy. And I, I, had that happened, I think the counterfactual is, I think we could well be in a different place right now had that happened. And that was, that was something that really struck me, was that a lot of the discussion in that summer of 16 was, how do we overturn this? Yeah. Rather than, how do we get ahead of it and yeah. own and shape the agenda? Yeah, that exactly. There. That's right, actually. A lot of the Remainers, I mean, it very quickly was a, we've been wronged. We have to overturn this. This was the, they cheated in the referendum. It wasn't a fair referendum, and I think a lot of a lot of scholars of EU politics and uh, you know a lot of political scientists of the situation have been who've been studying this was weren't willing to go along with that kind of thing because they knew that for you know for thirty years we've had a semi-detached relationship with the EU. Would it really be that different if we were in, say, a soft Brexit as opposed to us being inside the EU but opting out of as much as things as we can? It wouldn't actually substantively be that different. Mm. So don't get so hung up on the labels. on the labels of leaving the EU versus being in the EU. We've got to overturn the referendum. And also I think that we most of us accept it. I don't know about you, Simon, but most, most, I mean, most of the people I talk to, like Anand, for example, has this position, which is very much that we voted... It was a, re you know, there were lies on both sides. It was meant to be the final vote. It was sold as this is the chance in a lifetime decision. We made a damn decision. You can't just suddenly overturn it. And 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 you know, I, I do. I get. I'm quite intolerant of a lot of my students, some of my colleagues, or who say that, you know, you're not a true Remainer if you're not willing to. F campaign and fight on the streets to overturn the referendum and then I say what so we have another referendum what do we then do what two out of three best of five I mean what do we, penalty shoot out I mean what are we going to do <laughs> uh, no it's interesting I mean, no the thing that, that strikes me 
and I, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. The thing that strikes me as somebody who's worked on Euroscepticism is that all the things that I hear from those uh, Remain groups and, and activists are things that I've heard flipped around from Eurosceptics, you know, and how 75 was... Yeah. Now, you know, I can see in the longer term, you know, there are going to be waves of coming and going and, you know, have we made the right choice? And, you know, I, I, you know the final decision, you know, the referendum clearly didn't provide a, a discussion about what, why might we be in and why might we out. It was, you know, I want to, we want to win the vote. Yeah. And it wasn't really about settling a, a position right. for the UK in the scheme of things. No. Uh, and clearly that lays the groundwork then for many decades of discussion. But I, I, but I read it very much as... I mean, the one thing I think we really can take away from the vote is the British, a majority of the British public do not want to be part of the political integration project of and we've had generations of politicians here that have pretended that the EU was largely a sort of economic project. It's the single market, the common market, as we unfortunately called it for so long. Um, we had this mantra of we want economic integration, but not political integration. And I thought that's just nonsense. It makes no sense. And, and an inability to actually recognise what creating a single market is. Single market is a political project with a capital P. Free movement of goods, services, capital and labour is something qualitatively different than free trade. It requires a common set of rules. It requires an independent agenda set. It requires a legislature. It requires a court to enforce the rules. It requires a common budget. It requires free movement of people and justice and home affairs policies and you name it. That's political. It requires choices to be made about the level of social standards and environment standards and whether you're favouring business or, or consumers or whether you're favouring business or labour and equality in the workplace and you know these are political choices so to, to, to kind of say well I want economic union but I don't want political union just made no sense to me and we've had it's just been whether it's been Labour or Conservative in power here it hasn't made a difference they've had the same kind of mantra and I think the public has seen through that because they realise the project is a political project. It is about political integration. They see more powers going to Brussels. They have a kind of sense that powers are shifting. Um, Brussels is important. The EU is a big player. The EU matters. Uh, there's a set of rules that we have in our society set by the EU. Some of them we like, some of them we don't like. Um, there's an EU budget we pay into. The EU now has the euro that we're not in. There's this Schengen zone of free movement. When people travel around, they see there's no borders between countries. And so there's a sense that this is not just about economics. This is a political project. And generations of our politicians here have just been lying to us. Sooner or later, we have to make a decision. Are we going to be part of this political project or not? So the one thing I take away from this is the public, a majority of the British people, do not want to be part of that political integration project. Fine. But then I could easily construct a narrative to say that being in the EEA or being in a soft Brexit means actually you're not part of that political project. You're outside it. There's still, you're not as sovereign as you would be complete hard Brexit, but you've got a close economic relationship. You're not committed to the euro. You're not committed to the free movement of people. You're not committed to a whole range of bells and whistles that go with the process of political integration in the EU. But, so I, 
I could have easily thought about a politician who stood up and made that kind of argument at that point. I hear you. The public has made this decision, a choice in the road. We are leaving the political project of European integration. But that doesn't mean we have to have a basic free trade agreement as the end deal. It's very kind of uh, manache and kind of the yes or no, black or white kind of view, isn't it? That, you know, it's uh, everything or nothing. Well, that's what referendums are, though, right? I, know, I mean, so, well, that's why I have a problem with referendums. That you know, if in the right context, they can be helpful. But you know, I actually think request, that I think it was legitimate that we had a referendum. Well, I don't think it was illegitimate. No, but it's I, just I can see that it doesn't resolve. No, it doesn't resolve things in the way that it might at first glance, appears to resolve things. Right. Now, I guess I have at my... I, at my basic view of referendums is referendums in a democracy play a role um, if you're deciding an issue that has multi-generational consequences and cuts across party lines, so it's not part of the day-to-day political de- debate, and is sort of quasi-constitutional in nature. So, you know, you'd have a referendum to change the electoral system, or you'd have a referendum to abolish the House of Lords, or you'd have a referendum to join a political union or to leave a political union. Those types of things. I can even see a case for saying let's have a referendum on renewal of Trident. Because, you know, cuts across party lines, multi-generational consequences, um... It's kind of it, it's about Britons in the in the world, and we're making a major major choice to do this. And you know, like, uh, whereas you don't have a referendum on tax rates or the NHS or public transport or something. But but I so I, for the for me, it made sense to have a referendum on this, and and then you just accept that this is how it works. And I get I kind of get fed up with people saying. People didn't know what they were voting on, and people were they were they were lied to, and these guys were saying they'll get three hundred fifty million quid for the NHS, and if they'd used the correct number, one hundred and twenty million, it would still look like a really big number. Yes. <laughs> Doesn't matter whether they used the wrong number or not. And I remember we had those conversations at the time as well. All, <laughs> yeah. all, you know, even arguing about the number served to highlight that even the, a correct number was still a dirty yeah. great pile of money, um, <laughs> uh, which is why it was such a good campaigning move. Um, I guess the, the question then is, you know, does, this, does any of this settle the relationship between the UK and the EU? In any sense, you know, we're talking here a bit about the referendum, but also about this new emerging relationship that comes. You know, does that provide a stable basis? I I don't think it does. I think you're right there. You know, you know, on a good day, I wake up and I say, I think to myself, you know, in ten years. I hope we could get to a situation where the relationship with the UK and the rest of the EU is a bit like the relationship between Canada and the United States. You know, the, the, if you just followed a purely economic logic, there's no reason why Canada is independent from the US. When you think about the volume of trade integration, <laughs> sharing of regulatory rules and so on. But of course Canada wants, does not gonna, politically not going to want to be part of the US. And, but they're the closest of friends, they're close allies, closely integrated economies. It's pretty much free movement of high-skilled labour 
and sectoral specific free movement of other labour when they need it. They cooperate on borders, customs, environment standards, global security, terrorism, yada, yada, yada. And is it inconceivable that we could get to that point? No, I don't think so. And maybe that would be healthy for us and healthy for the EU. Can you see a Britain that would be comfortable being Canada? I think this is the question because you, know, you talk to Canadians and they're very well adjusted in large part. And I always remember being in an airport departure lounge in Canada and it said, the world needs more Canada. <laughs> uh, and that kind of, yeah, a, a, a sense... They that probably punch above their weight globally yeah. in a way, don't they? I mean, but they, they also have a sense of what they can't yes. do and they don't try to do. They're not. And that's, yeah, that you're right that... When I paint that kind of picture for a lot of Brits, they say, but we're more important than Canada. Well, are we really? No. And this is going to be the problem. The problem, I actually think in the medium term, the real psychological problem for the, of kind of, the problem where the UK needs to go see a shrink is about the fact that the way the global political economy is going, we're all going to be more or less vassal states of the three largest economies in the world, the US, the EU and China. They're going to set the global rules. All producers of goods and services are going to want to get access to those three markets. To get access to those three markets, you'll have to accept the rules of those three markets. And I remember a former student of mine is uh, Korean in the Korean Diplomatic Academy, and I asked her, hey, Won, about how does Brexit look from Korea? And she laughed at me and she said, well, We've sort of had this debate in Korea because now, what are they, the 10th largest economy in the world? Um, they have a free trade agreement with the EU, they have a free trade agreement with the US, which largely means they accept to apply US standards and EU standards. And Canada's in the same boat. So Canada and Korea are the two biggest economies that have accepted that. The other big economies, India, China, Brazil, Russia, Mexico, they haven't accepted that. They're too proud to accept a take-it-or-leave-it type deal from the EU or the, or the US. And the reason why the EU and the US can't do a deal with each other is for precisely that reason. But So Britain will find itself in this situation. We say we want an FTA with the US. The US will say, that means you accept our standards. The EU will say, you accept our standards. And we will have, for example, um, so a, former student of mine, a current student of mine whose parents are dairy farmers in Wales was in my office yesterday talking to me and her parents are dairy farmers, they're very pro-Brexit. And she was explaining to me why. And she said, well, they think that the cap is constraining them and they could be far more innovative outside the cap. And, and, and I said, are they aware that if we do a trade agreement with the US and a trade agreement with the they're going to be have to apply both US standards and EU standards in their dairy farm if they're, if they're exporting anything? And she said, no, they're not really aware of that. And if you're a Canadian beef farmer, you have one field of cows destined for the US, one field of cows destined for the EU, they're not allowed, you apply US standards in one field, EU standards in another field. How sovereign are you? You're not sovereign. My master's dissertation was largely why we should never use the word sovereignty uh, because it's so (laughs) problematic. Um, uh, And I'm reminded of that all too often in in all of this. Uh, A last area then, just to kind of come back to more prosaic matters, which is uh, Article 50 itself. Are we going to have a deal at the end of it? I'd be really surprised if we don't. Uh, you know, 
Northern Ireland is, of course, the tricky issue. So Article 50 will contain the, the budgetary agreement, which they've resolved. It will contain the rights for EU nationals in the UK and UK national which they're very close to resolving. And on Ireland, Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland, Irish Republic, I think they'll be able to fudge it. I think they'll be able to say, well, we will try and reach an agreement in the future relationship such that there doesn't need to be a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And if we don't, then there's a backstop. And the backstop is that Northern Ireland remains a special status. Right, so that, that I think, they could, that I would, can imagine will still be the way they fudge it in the Article 50 deal, and then the Article 50 deal will contain transition. I don't think there's appetite on either side to derail and have a no Brexit deal. And I don't even hear the appetite here anymore from the hard Brexiteers. I mean, six months ago, there was a view that was growing uh, by people, Carswell was of, was of this view, Rhys Mogg, uh, Andrew Lillico, some of the other think tanks were saying, the EU's being way too stubborn, let's just tear it up and go our own way. We don't hear that anymore. So I, I do think we will leave. I, I think the House of Commons, again, seems in its own parochialism, seems to think that it's going to have a meaningful vote. I don't think it's going to have a meaningful vote, meaning they think a meaningful vote means... If we vote no, then we send the British government back to carry on negotiating and getting a better deal. I think on the day of the vote, the message from Brussels, from Barnier, from Merkel, from Macron will be, this is it. Take it or leave it. We've sweated blood and tears to get to this point. If you reject it, you're at the door without a deal. And so I would be really surprised if the House of Commons votes it down under that condition. And I can imagine Labour being in the most difficult position on that. And I can imagine a big chunk of Labour MPs siding with the government if they're faced with that kind of choice, if it's a take it or leave it. Um, so I am expecting us to leave in March 2019. And then, in a sense, it kind of gets a bit more interesting after that, because then we can really start to really talk about the future relationship and where we'd like to end up. European Parliament has also got to approve this deal. Well, I think the European Parliament, the one issue the European Parliament was really pushing on was the rights of citizens. Uh, for Hofstadt and his team and the other representatives from the political parties in the European Parliament who were part of the European Parliament's negotiating team, um, the one issue they were pressing was rights of citizens. They seem to be more or less happy with the wording or the framing of where we are. They know that EU citizens are going to get almost all the current rights they have, but not all of them. And in a sense, it's a quid pro quo. UK citizens on the continent are going to get almost all their rights, but not all of them. And the big one they're missing is the ability to move within the EU. So UK citizens, in my sister's in the Netherlands, her and her family will either be able to live in the Netherlands or the UK. They won't be able to live in another EU member state unless they get a job or whatever. There's no free movement for UK citizens within the rest of the EU. And so in a sense, that's the quid pro quo for some of the rights of family reunification, for example, of EU citizens in the UK being limited. The European Parliament seems to be happy with that. The one thing they're most now putting pressure on are the administrative procedures, particularly in post-Windrush. What they are convinced is that the Home Office is a complete mess. The Home Office, is, if it has trouble dealing with a few hundred thousand migrants who came here 30 years ago, how on earth are they going to deal with three plus million who have 
no paperwork whatsoever, no stamp in their passport, no entry regulations, no, nothing to show that the, what date they arrived or how long we've, they've been here. How on earth are they going to process that? We're going to be in, you know, we'll be in, the Home Office will take 30 years to process that. They'll be dragged through the courts. That, I mean, I have no idea how they're going to do it. And I think, so they're, they're, what they're putting pressure on the government is to come forward with quite detailed proposals of exactly how are you going to implement this stuff administratively. And the Liberals in the Cabinet there, the Liberal Brexiteers in the Cabinet, <coughs> they're the ones who are in favour of really light touch. Even Boris Johnson's talking about an amnesty for all legals in the UK. That's quite a shock. Uh, so I can imagine the Liberal Brexiteers will be like, look, we're out of the EU. Let's just, you know... Make it really easy. Let's just set up an online registration system. Fill in a damn form and they're done. <laughs> the irony is, you know, Brussels and the Liberal Brexiteers would be happy with that kind of thing. May and Williamson and some of the others in the Tories probably won't. And Daily Mail? God, that's what they're going to say about it. I'm imagining the headlines. Yes, <laughs> I think that is uh, clearly <laughs> a thing. I think that's one of the things that's interesting, though, with Windrush is just kind of administrative capacity yes. uh, and when you were talking before about uh, Dover you know and the, the lack of preparation you know physical preparation you know, if there are going to be huge tailbacks well I understand that HMRC are buying up land in Kent they're buying up they're, they're using state powers to take over um, uh, petrol stations and things up and down roads and motorways around Folkestone and Dover you know are people aware that the Garden of England is going to become a car park Let's look forward to questions. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, time. Simon. This um, has been fun. Pleasure. And uh, well, good to talk to you.